0: Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 32, Bowerbirds, The Avian Architects. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're not doing the show I promised last time. Once again, there has been a slight scheduling issue, so instead we're going to talk about bowerbirds. And trust me, these are fancy birds. Noted ornithologist and historian Jared Diamond once described the bowerbird as the most intriguingly human of all birds. And this is because Nowhere in the avian kingdom, scrap that, anywhere in the animal kingdom, is there a creature that creates such intricate structures as the bowerbird. Well, you know, except for humans. We do make pretty impressive things. And we're animals. But whoa up there, I hear you say. Avid listener to the podcast, I know you are. What about all those nests you were talking about just a few episodes ago? Birds build all sorts of things what makes the bowerbird special? Well, thank you for bringing that up. And you are quite right, many birds are master builders. But what sets the bowerbird apart is not so much the structure it makes, but the purpose it has. Birds build many different things, but almost all of them are nests. They are a place to lay and incubate their eggs, And then raise their young. But bowerbirds don't build nests. That's a lie. Bowerbirds do build nests, but that's not what we're talking about today. Bowerbirds build, in a shock twist, bowers. But what is a bower, I hear you say? A strict definition of the word bower. They are an enclosed, shady place, which as we shall see, is not a bad description of what these birds make. Male bowerbirds build a structure out of grass or sticks that is used exclusively for courtship purposes. They are a way to impress and woo a female and convince her that he is the right guy to mate with. Other birds may use fancy plumes to attract a mate, but bowerbirds use a pile of sticks. And what a pile of sticks it is! Now, as we have previously met with other birds, the more elaborate the male's mating display is, the more likely it is that the birds are polygamous, with one male mating with multiple females, and then doing nothing to raise the young. And indeed, this is what we almost exclusively find with the bowerbirds. Now there are exceptions, there are always exceptions, but there is a lot to talk about and today we're going to get to the bottom of what's going on with bowerbirds, so let's jump on in. First let's begin with one of my favourite things, taxonomy. Bowerbirds are a type of passerine, they're a songbird. For a long time they were considered to be close relatives of the birds of paradise, but with more recent DNA analysis we now know that isn't true. The birds of paradise are cousins to the crows, they're corvids of a sort, whereas bowerbirds belong to a much more ancient lineage of songbird. So ancient, in fact, we're not super sure where they belong in the bird family tree. But they're what we call a basal songbird, basal meaning here that they belong to an early offshoot of the broader songbird family. In other words, they broke away from the main family millions of years ago and started doing their own evolutionary thing before the Corvids split off from the rest of the Songbird family. But it appears that the Lyrebird may be one of their closest relatives. And given that both Lyrebirds and Bowerbirds are masters of mimicry, we may be able to understand how these two birds are related. More on mimicry later. And also, just like the lyrebirds, bowerbirds are only found in the Australasian biogeographic realm. Man, we're just trashing out all sorts of techno mumbo jumbo today. Bower, basal, biogeographic realm. Taxonomy! <laughs> do, we, do we have time to explain a biogeographic realm? What, what that thing is? Maybe we'll save that for another day. For today, all you need to know is that bowerbirds are only found in Australia and New Guinea. Along with New Zealand, those areas make up the Australasian biogeographic realm. Okay. As is always the case, it is unclear how many species of bowerbird there are. It really depends on who you ask. But if you ask me, there are 27-ish, or so species divided into 8 genera genera, 10 live in New Guinea, 8 live in Australia, and there are 2 that can be found in both places. Now, talking about these birds in relation to which genre, genera, they're in isn't the most helpful way to talk about the family. A far more intuitive way to divide the family is to think about them in relation of what type of bowers they build. And in that sense, there are four types of bower birds there are the birds that make no bower, the birds that make a stage, the birds that make a maypole, and the birds that make an avenue. Stages, maypoles, avenues—are these birds making a folk town with a theatre precinct? Well, we'll come to all that, but first, maybe we should meet the birds that don't build nothing. And helpfully, for once, the bow birds that don't make bowers aren't called bow birds; they're called cat birds, which is maybe unexpected. But the ten or so species of cat birds earned their name because of the feline-like mewling they make. Roll the audio. It's kind of a pained, strangled, cat-calling sort of sound. Now, as oddly appropriate as the catbird's name is, they are of no relation to American catbirds, who are also called catbirds because they make mewling sounds. No relation. Within the Bowerbird family, though, catbirds are the outliers. They are green, fruit-eating birds of the forest. They grow to about 30 centimetres in size, have white flecks on their wings and breast and bright green eyes. These felines make no bowers, and unlike their polygamous cousins, they form monogamous pairs that stay together for extended periods. And this shouldn't be surprising, because the birds don't engage in an elaborate mating ritual, it is far more likely that they form monogamous pairs, and indeed, they do. They use their strange cat-wailing calls to ward off other birds and guard their territory. There is no agreement as to if the cat birds represent a primitive offshoot of the bowerbird family who never developed bower-building behaviours, or if they did once make bowers and abandoned the practice once they worked out it was better to pair up and work as a team. Some male catbirds have been recorded plucking green leaves and placing them upside down in rudimentary clearings, similar to what other bowerbirds do, but there doesn't seem to be any ceremonial purpose to the practice. Maybe it is a remnant behaviour, an echo of their old bachelor days from eons long ago. They're an intriguing member of the family, but they are only the appetiser to our main course. So let's move on to the tooth-billed bowerbird. They are the stage performers. The tooth-bill is so named because of a double notch they have in their beak, which comes in handy for pruning and stripping leaves. They are a brown bird with a white striped underbelly that lives in the montane forests of northeast Queensland. Males clear and opening on the forest floor about three metres in diameter which is a big stage for a little bird. To adorn it, they pick leaves and lay them bottom side up on the stage, similar to what the catbirds do. They deliberately pick leaves that have a pale green underside, and when placed together they create a kind of gentle reflected light that bathes the clearing. The males are naturally quite fastidious about where they place the leaves, everything has to be just so and they can spend hours fussing over where each leaf should go. And as soon as a leaf starts to wilt and lose its colour, it will be discarded and replaced with a fresh one. As we shall see, all bower birds are fussy about how they make their bowers. When it comes to mate selection, the females will visit these clearings, and this is when the male will perform his courtship dance. When the time comes, he will fluff up his feathers, forming a ruff about his neck. His wings flick, and his tail jerks upwards as he makes a series of burring and sputtering noises. If the mood really takes him, he'll pick up a leaf and display it as he dances, brandishing his leaf as he hops about the stage. A single male is more than happy to mate with as many females as are willing, and he naturally plays no part in raising the young. Looking at this courtship display, we can start to understand why for a long time people thought bowerbirds and the birds of paradise were closely related. You may recall from episode 9 that the proteas perform similar courtship displays, where they make a clearing in the forest to create a stage upon which to dance. They often hold props in their mouth, read polygamously, and the male takes no part in raising the young. This is of course an example of convergent evolution, where similar behaviours arise independently in unrelated animals, in this case their mating practices. Just as with the birds of paradise, many bowerbirds share the same regions and environments. In these places there is an abundance of food and lack of predators. These factors have enabled the birds of paradise to put more time into growing plumes and learning dances rather than foraging for survival. And just as it is for the birds of paradise, so too is it for the bowerbirds. They are a product of their environment. For now, though, let's move on to the more impressive builders. The maypole bowerbirds, and there are three birds worthy of our attention here. The golden bowerbird, McGregor's bowerbird, and the vogelkop bowerbird. Let's start with the golden bowerbird, the smallest member of the family, coming in at a maximum size of just 25 centimetres. Even though these golden-breasted birds are the smallest, they have the distinction of making the biggest bower. In the mountain forests of Queensland, they select a pair of trees about a metre apart which are bridged by a low branch or buttress. This bridge is important because it is from this elevated position that the male displays. Against both of these trees the bird builds two towers of sticks. They can be up to 3 metres tall. So this is a 25 centimeter bird building two 3-metre tall towers. Its towers are 12 times bigger than it is. That's like a single person building a tower over 20 metres tall. These are big bowers. The twigs that form the structure of the bowers are generally held together with the bird's own saliva and then decorated with moss, lichen, flowers and fruit. A male will maintain a site for its whole life and jealously guard it from rivals. When an old male dies, a new one will inherit the bower, and in this way these giant bowers can pass from one bird to the next over several decades. One bower has been known to be active for some 40 years. When a female arrives at a bower, the male displays to her from a branch that connects the two towers. He hops from side to side, flaring his small yellow crest and fanning out his tail. It is suspected that the golden bowerbird represents a potential common ancestor of the maypole bower builders and the avenue bower builders. The other maypole builders make a structure around a single tree, while the avenue builders make a much smaller twin structure, just big enough for the bird to walk through. Indeed, when you see photos of the golden bowerbird's bower, it does look like a massive version of what a satin bowerbird makes, but we'll come to that. First, let's leave Australia and make for New Guinea and the other maypole birds, beginning with McGregor's bowerbird. Now, the McGregor in the bird's name comes from one Lady McGregor, the wife of Sir William McGregor, who was the administrator of British New Guinea from 1888 to 1898. So, just a little dose of colonialism in there for this bird. Now, McGregor's bower Bird builds a massive maypole bower around a sapling tree, which can be up to a metre tall. That's the bower, not the tree. Around the base, they build a moat of moss with a raised wall. It makes for a grassy ring around the bottom of the tree that the bird can run around. They hang all sorts of ornaments on the twigs of the tower, like dung or tree sap, to create a kind of grotesque Christmas tree aesthetic. But apparently, that's what the ladies want to see a poop covered pile of sticks. Now, it is important. That the male stay vigilant for rival males, because these birds are petty. And if a male turns its back for even a second, a rival will show up and sabotage their tower, pulling out twigs and making a general mess. They do this because if they can make their neighbour's bower look bad, theirs will look better by comparison. It's all about impressing the ladies. They're devious little beggars. When a female comes to observe the bower, the male will begin what is a very intricate courtship display. The male and the female will stand on opposite sides of the maypole, hiding from the view of the other. It's all very coy. The male will then go through a repertoire of mimicry. It will faithfully replicate the sounds of not only other birds, but also other animals. inanimate sounds like rustling leaves or running water, or the sound of a hammer, and it can even approximate human voices. Once this proportion of the ritual is complete, the two birds then chase each other around the pole. Again, the aim of the game seems to be to remain unseen, hidden behind the bower. This game of peekaboo can go on for some time, lasting up to 20 minutes if they really get into it. In the last part of the courtship display, the male finally reveals himself, and flares out his bright yellow crest to dance and flash out from the opposite side of the pole. Now, the female judges, and quite harshly I should add, every aspect of this courtship, from how well he has constructed and decorated his maypole, how accurate and diverse his mimicry is, and then finally, how well he dances. It's a lot of information to take in, and then she will compare him against the other males she has already seen. What exactly the female is looking for, we don't know, but all we know is that everything counts, everything matters. How it matters though, well, yeah. But as is often the case with these displays, the majority of females will all choose the same male to mate with, so clearly there is something, some elusive quality that they're aware of that the other males are lacking, and it just screams, I am the right father for your children. Look at how artistically my dung has been displayed. But while each male bowerbird may look exactly the same to us, there is clearly some aesthetic choice it makes that all the females can see and that all the females love. And that leads us neatly to the Vogelkop bowerbird. Because when it comes to a question of artistry and aesthetic taste, there is no bird which displays more individuality than the Vogelkop bowerbird. And this is because the Vogelkop may be one of the few creatures in the world, outside of us people, that may display some sense of creativity. But let's back it up. First Vogelkop, what even is this word? Well. It's a Dutch word which means bird's head. Now, even though this bowerbird does indeed have the head of a bird, it is more of a coincidence than anything else. They're actually named after the Vogelkop Peninsula in the Indonesian side of New Guinea, so named because it kind of looks like the head of a bird. Now, these birds make the most remarkable structure of all. In fact, When Europeans first came across their bowers, they thought they'd been made by the children of local tribes, because they resembled a small hut that a child might play in. But there is no small child involved, no no, it is a small bird. Just like McGregor, the Vogelkop selects a sapling tree to build its bower around. But instead of a tower, it makes an enclosed hut with an opening at the front. In front of the bower, it removes the leaf litter, creating a clearing. And it is in this clearing, at the entrance of the bower, that it places its treasures. And each Vogelkop has a different aesthetic taste. Some like orange things, others like pinks, or greens, or reds. Some like to collect beetles, others like berries, or feathers, or fungi, or yes, even dung. Each male has their own personality, their own preferences for display and decoration. This is quite different from, say, the satin bowerbirds, which all collect blue things. Vogel cops, by comparison, seem to make choices. They seem to have taste preferences. Could this be something approaching intelligence? Maybe, and it's potentially a quality that all the bowerbirds have, and could even be the quality that the females are looking for. Maybe they like a brainy bird. Let's explore this question further by turning finally to the avenue bower birds; These are the ones Australians will be most familiar with, the satin bowerbird being the most famous. Now, while their structures are nowhere near as impressive as their maypole brethren, there is still quite a bit going on. The maypole builders spend years building and tending to their bowers, but for some of the avenue birds, their bowers may only last a season. They're much smaller, and they form a short avenue enclosed by two walls of sticks. During the male's mating display, the female will enter the bower, which serves as her vantage point to watch the display. As we have mentioned, the satin bowerbird has an obsession with blue things, and they will display their blue treasures around their bower. Now, as we saw before, a male has to be vigilant to protect its bower from rivals, and satin bowerbirds can get particularly tricksy. You see, it takes a juvenile male a while to reach sexual maturity. Before he does, he looks like a female bird. The male is a glossy black bird that shimmers a kind of iridescent blue, while the female is more of a fawn colour with lots of neutral grey and brown tones. It can take up to seven years for a young male to come into its mature plumes, but it spends these formative years learning how to make a bower and how to display. Gangs of young males will form up, and build a communal bower and take turns pretending to be a female so their buddies can practice their dance moves. Once they are mature, they will then go off and make a primary bower that is attended to and maintained only by one bird. But before they do that, they will visit mature males to watch the masters in action. And sometimes they can get a little cheeky. Sometimes a juvenile male will impersonate a female. They will come down and enter the bower as a female would, which then encourages the mature male to begin its dance routine. But this is all a ruse to distract the male. Once the juvenile is in and close enough, he will steal the blue treasures and take them back to the communal bower. And woe betide the male who leaves his bower long enough for the gang to raid his sight and strip it clean of all its blue trinkets. Because trust me, they will do that too. They are sneaky. Devious youths, those satin bower birds. But once again, it does display a certain level of intelligence. To deceive your adversary, you have to be pretty clever, and these birds are certainly deceitful. But now, to finish up our exploration of the bower birds, we come to one that is a little lesser known, but is maybe the most interesting the greater bower bird. This is another avenue builder. But unlike the many birds we have met so far, the greater bower bird prefers drier environs, like scrubland and paperback woodlands. A slate grey bird, they are maybe one of the least remarkable in appearance, but their bowers are fascinating. These birds are very particular about how they arrange their treasures. They all have a habit of placing large things in the foreground and small things further back. This creates what is called a forced perspective, because our eyes are naturally trained to assume that things become smaller in the distance. Arranging things in this way can have the effect of making the big things in the foreground look even bigger. It can make the bird itself look bigger and more impressive as well. Now, there are a few examples in architecture where this effect is used to make buildings look longer or bigger than what they actually are. But this is no accident on the bird's part. Researchers have gone in and deliberately rearranged their items, putting the small things up front. And the birds, greatly annoyed no doubt, instantly go in and put things to right. They know what effect they're going for, and how things need to be arranged to achieve it. Now next, you will recall that the bower itself, the avenue of twigs, is especially aligned, so that when the female enters to watch the display, it happens from the perspective the male wants her to see it from. Once inside the bower, the male then positions himself so that she can only see his head. He then takes colourful objects into his beak and displays them to her, one after another. This part of the display is almost like a magic trick. He makes new objects appear, seemingly out of nowhere. The more colourful objects, with greater variation he shows, the longer the females have been recorded to stay in the bower, captivated by the display. There seems to be something about displaying novel items, something new to the female that helps hold her attention for longer. Again, this could speak to the bird's intelligence. A fascination in the new is a trait that is often associated with animals that are more intelligent. And maybe Ultimately, that is what the females are looking for when they judge the male's construction. Treasures, dance, and mimicry. They may be looking for a male that can display how intelligent he is. Because if we consider what these birds go through to construct and maintain their display sites, to create optical illusions and forced perspectives, it's pretty crazy. Even just the sheer energy and effort that goes into making a bower is unusual in the animal world. For example, spotted bowerbirds love white bones and shells. Researchers who catalogued the treasures one male had accrued around his bower found 1,300 individual bones. That's quite a little graveyard. Another bowerbird had collected over 2,500 snail shells. The time and effort That goes into searching for, transporting, and painstakingly arranging these objects into an appealing display is bonkers. For most animals in nature, the majority of the energy they expend is on survival, finding food, just staying alive. Any surplus energy can then be devoted to mating and raising young. And in lean years, some birds won't even breed if the energy resources aren't there to raise their young. And yet, Bower birds spend a copious amount of energy on something that contributes nothing to their survival and nothing to raising their offspring. It's all done in the vain hope that a passing female may be impressed by their artistic efforts. No doubt then, a bird who can make such a display sight and still find time to eat and survive must be pretty clever. Of course, we can never know for sure What is going on in the mind of the female bowerbird? What drives her to only choose mates that can arrange bones, feathers and dungs? Why she likes mercury or towers of twigs? But nevertheless, it does make these birds amazing. These architects, these performers, these curators of collections. The bowerbird family is truly unique, and I hope you have enjoyed learning about them with me today. Now, next time, I'm going to bring you the episode I promised last time, and we're going to have a discussion about avian sleeping practices, because as it turns out, they do not sleep like we people do. Now, if you'd still like some more bird action, I've got some good news. Our bonus podcast called What's Up with That Bird's Name has just come out, and this week it is all about the barnacle goose. What does a goose have to do with a barnacle? Well, for the low, low price of just $2 a month, you can find out all about it. All you need to do is swing on over to Patreon, forward slash, Bird of the Week, or one word link in the description to find out more. And if you're feeling especially generous and want to make a bigger contribution, then you too can get a special thank you from me and the show, just like my good friends Jill Chalker, Jody Little, Debbie Hode, and Richard Clark, the Minty Fresh. And as always, if you'd like to receive a bird in your inbox each week, then drop me a line at weekly.bird@outlook.com, and I'll add you to the mailing list where you will get a new bird lovingly delivered to you for free each and every week. I mean, hey, who doesn't want more birds in their inbox? At any rate, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again next time. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. Oh, darling, what have you brought me? Why, it's a poop-covered pile of sticks. Ah, you spoil me so.